0: single and welcome to resistance radio i am john kane i am your host along with regan de who i hope is uh, with us if uh, are you with us right now regan or are you still yet to join us
1: i mean i sure hope so can y'all hear me okay
0: <laughs> why does it always sound like you're like got a moving van in the background because <laughs> <laughs> i'm always moving <laughs> well that's a good thing i guess all right, hey, we got a good show planned for today. I've got Bob henley who's going to be joining us. Uh he did a great piece uh, recently um you know that I that I was reading online that really kind of called out the betrayal associated with how the fight for 15 was used to pass a stimulus bill and and what was really at stake. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about poverty in general. But before we get into that, let me again remind people that we are listener supported radio, um, WBAI and WPFW we're Both listener-supported radio, and you really should support the stations. You should, uh, and and if you do it in the name of this program, I know Regan and I will greatly appreciate it. And you know, one of the things that Bob Hanley used to used to always promote, when especially when he was you know really engaged with WBAI, was that the the programs are the premium. So while you know we go through fundraises, you know fund fund drives, and that kind of stuff. I try to to try to carry on with a normal program to to illustrate that this is the product that we're delivering that we want you to make a contribution to the stations to. So, again, if you're listening in New York, uh, I encourage you to call the pledge line, which is 516-620-3602, or go online to give to wbaiorg Make a t- contribution of any size. You can do it in the name of the station, and we'll, we'll greatly appreciate it. If you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, then I ask you to go to their pledge line, which is 202 588 9739 or you can go online at wpfwfm.org and follow the prompts to make a donation um listener support radio folks it's it's up to you it's up to you you decide not only if we stay on the air but what stays on the air so um, make a contribution uh do what you can when you can we appreciate it all right so everybody's like uh you know trying to rave about the new stimulus package, you know $1.9 oh, trillion dollars or whatever else. Um, and you know and, and I really can't help but feel like there was just such a, an ugly shell game that was being played with you know, especially with the, with the 15 uh, the, the minimum wage at 15 an hour that that whole fight for 15. And you know and and I look at this stimulus package and and the the first one uh... That was passed during the, during the Trump administration, and the amount of gifts that go to the wealthy are still incredible. Oh, sure, they trimmed down the fourteen hundred dollar uh, checks. So if you made over a hundred thousand dollars as a as a household, you're going to get something less. So they, but but see, that's I mean that's not even a lot of money in some in depending on you know which economy you're living in, but the amount of of <laughs> You know, grift that that has gone to you know to to who knows where um, is is just incredible. But um, you know, I really want to bring Bob Henley into the conversation. I know that uh, you, Regan, and I we're we're going to have Bob for the first half of the show, uh, and then I want you and I to talk specifically about poverty, where it hurts, where it hits, uh, specifically you know as it relates to Native territories. And I know you have some thoughts on that. So, uh, Reggie, do we have uh, Bob Henley with us yet? Yes, we do. Bob Hanley, are you Hello. there? Yeah, <laughs> there here. he is. Well, one thing I got to tell you, I, I so greatly appreciate you uh, you reaching out to me this week. Uh, I I read your piece, and you know, and, and there's this whole hodgepodge of not just what took place with this so-called fight for 15 um, being used as a as a pawn to pass the um, uh, the stimulus package, but but even in the in the bigger context when i hear conversations about the poor people's campaign you know i i think there's so much that gets missed in that conversation but but before you know we even kind of you know parse that out give me your you know g- give me the overview i know you did a, a great piece on this uh but uh, talk to me about what happened to the 15 uh, 15 an hour minimum wage
2: I I benefited from having a conversation uh, with Dr. Barber, Reverend Barber, who leads the Poor People's Campaign, right at the cynical point where um, the Senate parliamentarian at $171,000 a year, an unelected person, had decided that lifting the uh, minimum wage from its poverty level of $7.25, where it's been sucked since 2009, to fifteen million was just too heavy a lift and inappropriate for the uh, use of the reconciliation uh, maneuver that the Democrats are using to overcome um, the white supremacist uh, filibuster. Um, And so in order to do it between, they didn't want to override the precious filibuster. Um, And so they just, you know, it was uh, introduced without that, but then the credit of Senator Sanders from Vermont, um, at least we were going to get accounting. So we raised it on the floor of the Senate and uh, several um, senators, Democrats from what Reverend Barber refers to as the House of Lords, I like that, um, decided that, we'll along with Angus King <laughs> from Maine, that they were not going to vote to raise the minimum wage. So a combination of the insurrectionist, white supremacist, confederate senator still sitting in the Senate, formerly known as the uh, GOP, and um, eight Democrats from the Democratic caucus combined to defeat and keep the wage at this ridiculous level, denying to 30 to 40 million people, depending on the math, a living wage. And this was what they offered essential workers. These would be the same as essential workers that they've been wringing their hands about about. What a terrible situation! How the pandemic has revealed the stark injustice and cruelty
0: <laughs> is in our culture. <laughs> yeah, it took the pandemic for
1: Do- people to realize that racism was an issue, that colonialism was an issue, capitalism an issue.
0: What, what a other social injustice doesn't doesn't demonstrate the systemic nature of racism in the United States? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean it, it goes it almost goes without saying, but. But you know it, it what's incredible is to think about what seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour really is and and the fact that it's stayed where it's at for for so long. And yeah oh, by the way, Bob, how many Republicans voted uh, in the house for the for the new stimulus package? Um, uh, it's uh, near zero, I believe zero. Oh, yeah, oh, zero, zero. yeah how, how many how <laughs> many senators in the in the Senate, Republican senators voted for it?
2: a hundred percent. they they voted against. It. They know where they are going.
0: <laughs> so this like this bipartisanship thing is really working, huh?
2: <laughs> well, that's what the bipartisan coalition is done as as Dr. Barber said to me, it took uh, African Americans and poor people four hundred years to get to seven dollars and twenty five cents. They can't afford another four hundred years. Now, and here's the thing, don't you, I, I always feel like we're so contrarian. Like we're clearly already, They're getting ready to put Joe Biden in Mount Rushmore. He's being likened on MSNBC to FDR. Uh, And so we are contrarians. We are out there. You know, it's not false advertising to say it's resistance radio, because the reality is that this $1.9 trillion, and this is the part that's really aggravating from an economic standpoint, what they're going to do is borrow a bunch of money that taxpayers are going to have to pay back, but not give a bad hair day to the billionaires that are profiteering off of the sweat and uh, off the brow and COVID exposure of millions of Americans who were working in the face-to-face economy, and so there'll be a short-term bump, and yes, a reduced uh, childhood poverty for a year. Meanwhile, the children of poverty won't have a living wage ever.
0: Yeah, but but Sorry, didn't yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah, they yeah. raise the taxes on on Wall Street trades? Didn't they uh, implement a new tax there?
2: Are you living in a parallel universe, Coleman?
0: <laughs> oh, they didn't. Okay, yeah, all right. No, that's right. They no, didn't. It, no, not, never mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know it's it's I I you know I can't even help but laugh. I mean because the level of absurdity is so profound that that I don't know. I don't even know what the right emotional response is. So so I'm stuck laughing. I mean I mean I that's feel like sad. something
1: that's missing from this conversation is that $15 for minimum wage is the absolute minimum. Like that's an oh, absurd. Yeah. Like that's also a tiny amount of money. Like 15 bucks an hour. Like I understand that the idea for Fight for 15 is that there's one movement that everyone's unionized under the $15 an hour. But the reality is that that is not a livable wage either.
0: In most places, no. We, it absolutely in most is not. Places it, it's, it,
1: it's just to scrape by, and that's an absurd thing to ask of people. Is to scrape by when the intention is for us to thrive. So the reality is that even the fight for fifteen is a problematic movement. We should be pushing well, for it was significantly a good
2: idea more. Eight
1: years ago, it was a good idea. It, it, yeah, exactly. It was a good idea eight years ago.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we are now
1: well, here well, and in this time, exactly. in this moment, and it's not enough. And it would never be enough in the same way that this. Uh, the stimulus package is a joke
0: yeah well and, and, and the well, whole guess, idea that the $15 an hour, even that if it had gone through the way they alleged they were trying to push it through, there still were these gaping holes especially for farm you know farm workers and you know and, and so many well, other people that it, John, that, it was crazy that goes,
2: I mean everything Reagan says is, is spot on and of course what it also doesn't factor in is that wage without universal health care is really, you know, exactly. ridiculous. And so and so, you have a situation of this grotesque inequity, which has grown consistently. And I might say that there's a through line, that the racist um, crime against humanity reflected in genocide, reflected in slavery, there's a through line. And so it's very important to continue to bear witness to this. So it's important to remember, I'm sure your listeners do, but you know, there might be in Washington some off person who just turned by accident to this dial. Social Security and the basic protections that they uh, um, FDR uh, is credited with when it came to wage and hour protections, the deal that Democrats cut with the South was to keep basically Jim Crow and a economic apartheid in place by exempting domestic workers and agriculture workers, uh, a cutout that exists— much of the United States to this very day. So this betrayal I'm really, has I'm really been very- glad that
1: you brought that up, considering that there has been a legacy of black and brown organizers in the South who have been organizing against or rather for raised wages and against the continued uh, co-option of domestic work. I mean, black women were organizing domestic work parties in the early 1910s and even I mean during the height of Jim Crow specifically in Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana. There's a there's a legacy of black women and brown women organizing against the the way that domestic labor is viewed within the United States. So this isn't like a contemporary issue. This is a historical issue in which we can see that domestic workers are constantly put down and not seen as enough. In the same way that we are now uh, labeling domestic workers as essential workers Nonetheless they don't have access to the same We don't, I say uh, like they Like we aren't a part of it Like they don't have access, we don't have access To the same needs and resources It's an it's an absurd It's an absurdity that has been happening For, for forever
0: Well and, and at the end of the day You can attribute everything You know when it comes to um, You know Social inequities right along the 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 wage and and the income line and of course those those wage earning and those those uh those poverty lines run right along racial lines of course but you know they've even did a study where they were talking about the development of the brain and how they could correlate the the development of the brain with income because they know that from you know from cradle to to pre-k what's happening to children who are born into poverty is nothing, it, it will essentially never be overcome. The damage that is happening to children in those first four years of life will never be overcome not just with the current system, but with any system because you've created such disparity that you've actually altered the, the physicality of, uh, of, of somebody's development.
1: Well, generational poverty is generational trauma. They are synonymous. Those who grow up in poverty, whose families grew up in poverty, it's literally uh, embedded within us. so it's it is a real issue that if you grow up in abject poverty, that it will be a constant uh, it will haunt you. It's a haunting for the rest of your life. And probably assuming because we constantly are participating in capitalism, you will not escape it. Your children will not escape it. So this generational poverty is is a really is a hot topic, if you will, contemporarily, but this has been an issue.
2: Yeah. Well, and I would say that one of the things that is particularly clear is that this uh, Biden and was, uh, you know, they were talking about, the, the punditry was talking about how they weren't going to make the same mistake they made back in 2008 when they built out Wall Street and left MLK and Main Street to hang. No, they were going to do it different. These new kind of Democrats. Well, of course, what happened then was that, they did bail out Wall Street. They recapitalized the same predators that brought about the collapse of home values. And so it was the largest African-Americans may have nominally uh, gained the bragging rights of having a person in the White House was African-American, but they lost their own home. In and in, in numbers that were unprecedented. So you've now seen going into the pandemic, what set the stage for that pandemic was, was, was the intergenerational legacy that Reagan so eloquently described. So going into it, we had set the table for this mass death event.
0: Well, and, and who benefits, who benefit, benefited from all of those uh, those foreclosed uh, mortgages?
2: Well, you know, the same characters were came back and then bought up the rental housing. I've done stories about this, where right. they went up and, and bought the, and or they let them just exist as zombie homes. Which further undermined the ability of the people that of color who managed against all odds to hang on, and so what ended up happening was, is these neighborhoods uh, that I've been reporting and, and working in, what happened was the few people left that were kind of trying to hold on get taxed out, because the way the government makes up the decline in value of the real estate is to raise the taxes on the few brave souls who have managed to hang on.
0: Sure. So, I mean, I when we talk that- about the, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, mm-hmm. and, and I know that sounds like a nice catchphrase, but but to put a finer point on it, the reason that you ha- you have a much larger uh, income disparity today, can be, much of it can be tracked tra- to what took place in 2008 with a, with a bailout. I mean, and and mm-hmm. I think that's the point that we miss because it's easy for the people on the left to blame the people on the right um, and a lot of the the general people who may be somewhat apolitical to buy into that argument. But there has to be – and this is really what, what part of the reason for having this conversation – there has to be accountability held against the left.
1: But that's – I, I feel like I have to push back on that, John, because I, I hate that argument. I hate when people are like vote in these absurd – uh, politicians, but we will hold them accountable. You can't hold them accountable. The whole point of settler colonialism and the politics that is settler colonialism is that it maintains the status quo. So when we say, okay, we can vote someone in, but then we can hold them accountable, the system literally does not allow that. We can't hold Biden accountable unless we're gonna, you know,
0: go storm the Capitol. <laughs> well, well I, I, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that. And that's not really <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm saying that that. The left can't be given a pass because they're somewhat better than the right. I mean, and that's Absolutely. the argument that's being made. That's, that's like, I guess, I'm, really, I'm not saying, look, you know, you know, hold your nose, you know, pull the lever, you know, vote for somebody you don't like because you can reshape them afterwards. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent. That's, that's not, that's, I, I the system gonna... is so flawed that but, that when... it is, it's almost irretrievable.
1: What's also disturbing is not only how the system is flawed, but then how harm reduction is um, like insidiously tied or braided into it, in which we are uh, fed this idea that, okay, vote, vote left, I'm putting left in quotes because Biden is not the left, <laughs> not my left, um, but it, it's an insidious part where we are told that like voting for the lesser of these two evils and then holding those politicians accountable is a way to make change. But we can see already from the Biden administration that that's not real. It's never been real. I mean, most of us have known this for a while, especially if you're from a uh, a colonized community or a community that is constantly under the under the boot of settler colonialism. But the the reality is that like you can't, like even last week when we were talking about Deb Howland, like how are we going to as as Indigenous people as Indians, how's Indian country going to hold Deb Howland accountable? Like I I feel like this conversation of like we will hold them accountable is such an easy way to avoid having the actual conversations which is that all of these politicians every single one of them is a problem you can't hold problems accountable we just can't have this system
0: yeah, well, yeah. I guess you can't you can't too promote too, the I, system and then try to hold it accountable go ahead Bob. exactly exactly
2: I, I, I want i think that one of the things that uh needs to happen and is already happening is authentic real world responses that affect changes in people's lives where they're where they're empowered and have taken the power and agency themselves to make the changes in the communities that they envision.
1: Can you give and, an example that, of what you're imagining?
2: Well, no, I mean I just think that there's and you see some manifestation of it where coming out of even like the Panther tradition of uh, mm. and what we've seen in in the Native response around the country, like yes, you're aware of politics, but you're pressing needs for your children. You have pressing needs, You have, you know, and the whole Freedom School movement came out of a direct response to the need to, uh, to understand that um, sometimes, and those of us who have been blessed with having a chance to raise children know that you can't, uh, in a kid's life, This you can't, you know, a lost month is a lost month. A lost summer is a lost summer. And so there has to be kind of like an anarchic direct action kind of approach. And to create institutions and support community institutions just like these, these radio stations that are outside of this power structure and I, I think we have to kind of move on both planes. I think we both have to be aware of the political world we live in lest we be marginalized like the Amish but like Reagan says inspired by a kind of radicalism that creates our own reality
0: no and I, and I get that and I, and I understand that look look we all have to do we, we all get by day to day. So and and I get that. And and so we make, you know, perhaps compromises. We make choices every day to get through to the next day, to get to the next paycheck, to get to you know wherever. And and you know, and as a, as adults, we can, you know, we can stretch that out, right? We can we can make it sound like it's uh, um, you know, we can always recover. The the problem is and I go back to what I was saying about about children in that in that, you know, cradle to 4 years old. Some of this stuff becomes irretrievable. And and if we don't do the things, look, I I'm gonna tell you right now, for for all of the the crap that you know that is being pushed out in the mainstream media, I just see a a, 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 a another you know big mess coming in the midterm elections because look if you're if you're a, a quote unquote Democrat and you know how much you've been you, you've been screwed by the so-called left and i and i agree with you uh reagan it's certainly not left but when, <laughs> when you know how much that you've been screwed by the people that you voted for and and they're and they're always trying to frame it as if oh it's, it's like baby steps and and it's not i mean so at some point you say i i'm, I'm giving up on the system and look i don't think I, I'm less concerned about you know Trump becoming president again, than I am the fact that that he does have influence in all of these local races. I could see I could see the the Democrats losing the Senate, losing the House in in mm-hmm. uh, in less than two years. I could see that happening because Absolutely. what what's the motivation you know for anybody who would have voted for a Democrat? To, to realize, look, this this stimulus package looks just like the one that, uh, you know, that Trump has.
2: Well, 2016 is instructive. That's why your Secretary of State is Clinton is Secretary of State Clinton. You had <laughs> yeah. in these communities we are describing, um, African-American folks did not have hope and change because grandma's house was gone. Yep.
1: I think that yep. your question, John, what is the motivation, is so important when we talk about why liberals continue to uphold a neoliberal agenda, which is the reality is it's to placate inaction When people yeah. participate in, again, I'm putting leftist politics in quotes, but let's just say liberal politics, democratic politics. When people participate in those, it's under this guise of allyship as if though their vote will maintain or help break the oppression that we see constantly. And I think that in the end, people who vote are, are aware that it is in, in in hopes to just placate this of abject white guilt or if you're not white then just guilt in general for not participating in larger conversations of revolutionary work it's easier to vote than it is to do mutual aid it's easier to vote than it is to be radical it's easier to vote than to be a criminal according to what the state has defined a criminal and the reality is that most of us who do not live within the confines of you know under what people deem as liberalism do live lives as criminals. Yeah. So I think that that's also a part of the conversation is that I think people are fearful of being seen, you know, as someone who's working against the state.
0: I mean, I, you, what, you, what you just said is just so true. I think about my life as I live it right now, how so much of it is essentially characterized as um, as a life of crime. And, yes. and, and, I, and I'm not saying that and I'm not I'm not you know, confessing here, but I'm um, look. I live on a native territory where we promote the, you know, the few regulatory advantages that we have to create an economy, which is not a great economy. And look, we, we look, we sell cigarettes, gas, and, and we have casinos. <laughs> that's what that's what exists on native territory. <laughs> and you know what? Every card of cigarettes that sits in a, on a shelf on, uh, on the stores here on native territory, the state says is contraband every one of them because if they don't have a new york state standpoint, even though they're on our territories it's considered illegal and who do, who do you think sponsors the work that i do so so i am you know i you know i am the the direct beneficiary of uh, of of these of organized crime as far as the state is concerned <laughs>
1: You know, oh I don't. Lord. I don't coor- going to prison, y'all. Uh,
0: again, right now, I don't. I don't cooperate with with uh you know with tax officials. I mean, everything. You're you're right, and, and that's not even talking about the work that I do. That's just talking about the stuff that I don't do. I mean, <laughs> well, you're, you're right. We have been criminalized.
2: One hell of a premium.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, to be to be a radical, to be a leftist, is to be is to understand is to embrace a life of crime. And mind you, that crime is not actual crime. Harm reduction is not actual crime. Refusing to pay rent is not actual crime. But under this federal government and under a capitalist society, we are seen as criminals for not doing those things. It is, in the same way that it is disgusting that police protect property over people, it's, it's, it, it, I think that there's this real abject fear for people to commit to radicality, because the realization is that then you have to live your life as what the state would define is a criminal life.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 think you're absolutely right, and and I think you know some of what we experience, uh, you know, or I experience living on a native territory is realizing that we had to normalize what the outside is considered. You know, and I, when I say outside, I mean the government, because look, even as we're doing certain things like selling you know tobacco or, or, or fuel products without New York State stand, uh, tax on or whatever else it's it's New Yorkers who are coming in to buy this product I mean so they they fully support what we do but but in the meantime it, it is it is out loud. so this is the reality and, and I, I'm so glad that you framed it just the way that you did Regan because you know it is so easy to to, to think that you've that you've somehow slipped through um, you know, a loophole or something like that. No, it's not. I mean, f- f- folks like me, I've got to live my life right out in front of everybody to say, No, I'm not playing your game. I'm you no, know, I I've rejected. chosen a I'm life resisting. of crime, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> everyone. Well, I
2: would say the, the, the other equivalent here is too that you have uh, when you look at so, what is the state up to? So, um, just the other day, um. I, just, I think it was last night I saw the Canadian the governor saying goodbye to 600 National um, uh, Guard troops that are going to uh, Africa to continue enduring freedom. Like, So that's what the state's up to, right? So, And that doesn't even get a blip. And so operating in the media, um, when you want to point things out like that, and they're so counter to the narrative. Uh, in which you are is you you are taking the risk to be obscure because if you make those points, you have to reconcile that you won. You have to create an audience, and you have to expect not to be compensated for it because that's subversive observation. We're not doing global uh, further notice war on terrorism critique right now. We're doing Joe Biden is a great hero. So anything outside of that is just not part of of the debate. And so then. It becomes part of the debate once we have a crisis. Then people are like, well, how is it that, and this is the thing I, I don't, uh, I, I can't figure out. When we have the capital breached in this massive security breach that happened, and we marshaled all these resources for homeland defense, $700 billion a year of borrowed money that's part of this poverty machine, this great pyramid scheme, why isn't it, why aren't the generals and the whole security apparatus of the state called into question as having failed? Why is it then? Those are the same people that didn't see it coming. That we have. Well, what do you think went wrong on uh, January 6th? Well, tell us, General, what went wrong?
1: <laughs> Nothing went wrong. Everything went yeah. exactly to plan.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we got the flag in there to. finally. It
2: only took over 100 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that that's exactly right. And 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 look, you know, Bob, before you go. Um, you know, I, and I and I've got to, I brought this up to you in our conversation. Look, I appreciate um, on its face the work that Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign is 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 doing, but you know, we haven't had as as Native people, we're not even a part of that conversation. But what I here's what I will say, and and Regan, you, you feel free to jump in on this thing. <laughs> we the Black Lives Matter movement, where we did no. Specific lobbying, we, we, you know, many Native people supported the Black Lives Matter movement. We were direct beneficiaries of the, of the demands and of, of the work that the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement uh, brought. I mean, look, when they were taking down Confederate statues, they were taking Columbus statues right down beside it. The Not Washington really. football team, its name, you know, it lost its name because of the, uh, of the, the call to social justice in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Yeah. So I mean when when I when I think about these big movements that are organized top down I don't see where native people fit into that but I certainly have seen where where at the grassroots level the people who who I can actually look at eye to eye I know they see me I'm just not sure that people on the top see us
1: Absolutely I mean the grassroots movement is based in community work and that's why we see ourselves within it I mean, now Black Lives Matter the way that it has been co-opted as this like national group. It's, you know a lot of uh, different chapters have released letters in response to that. But in in the end, you're absolutely right in saying that we benefit as Indigenous people from the Black Lives Matter movement because it became a larger conversations about social in, uh, injustices, social inequities, economic and social inequities and injustices. And it it's actually incredibly poignant. And purposeful that that is what's happening because in the end, black liberation and indigenous liberation are synonymous. One will not happen without the other. It, most of the time, because our communities overlap. I mean, we've discussed this a lot on the radio, but there are such and there's such an amount of erasure about black indigenous people within our own communities. You know, and I've talked about this a lot as growing up in the South and growing up Choctaw and. The immense amount of anti blackness within my own nation. And I think that that is also a part of this is that sometimes we're surprised being like, oh, wow, as indigenous people, we benefited from the black liberation movement. And the reality is because they are one and the same often. Our communities overlap in so many ways. Uh, so it's
0: I. Not, it's, not even, it's not even overlap, it's, we're all on the same spectrum, you know, and, and that's. Well, and, and, the,
2: and, and in the crucible of actual specific struggle in communities, that's exactly what's happened where. The, the otherness uh, galvanized coalition building because of the uh, the aggressive and violent nature of white supremacy. I do want to say, though, John, that in my conversation with Reverend Barber, there was constantly connecting and reference into the native struggle. So I, I can't. I, I'm not a scholar to talk about how the Poor People's Campaign is rolled out. I've only encountered the man once on the phone, but multiple times that issue came up. So uh, I don't have the the uh, on the ground reporting you do about how it hasn't worked out, but my experience of him in that moment was that he was conscious of the connectedness of the struggle of Native people to the broader struggle.
1: I like. Well, you've you had one connection. more conversation
0: with him. You've had one more conversation with him than I have, and and but I will say I do anticipate engaging this. So you know I'm, i I ha- I haven't ruled it out. Part of me calling it out is because I'm not ruling it out. Go ahead, Regan. I-
1: I was going to say um i really appreciate that you use the term connectiveness because i i really think it's a a problem when we talk about community struggle that we use terms like shared struggles because in the in what it boils down to is that there are struggles between indigenous and black folks that we do not share and we can't flatten that oppression under the guise of we are all you know like this is a shared oppression because you know enslavement was real indigenous people enslaved uh, black folks, like that's that's a real conversation. So like, I definitely don't wanna use terminology that we have shared oppression, but I think that there is a connectiveness within our oppression that we cannot ignore. Um, whether it is because of histories of enslavement within indigenous communities, or whether it is because we've been constantly uh, deemed as resources through the capitalist state. So I definitely, I, I see, and uh, I just really appreciate the word connectiveness being used rather than shared.
0: Bob, do you have any final thoughts before I let you go? I know you've well, got some things you gotta got to get to. I can't to a half hour talking to you, radical folks. We didn't talk about <laughs> poor Andrew
2: Cuomo, the friend of native people everywhere. We'll do that one
0: again. <laughs> you and I, right. you and I are doing a piece on that one yet.
2: All right,
1: thank you so much, all. Stay well, stay strong. take care. Yakoki, okay. thank
0: you. <laughs> all right, that's that's Robert Henley, Bob Henley he uh, writes for the the chief leader as well as uh, uh, city and state. He does some salon work. Um, I mean he writes for salon. He didn't do salon work that uh, so <laughs> that's, love that's having my good Bob friend. On. Yeah, so do I. Look, we'll take a break. Uh, Reggie, you can take us out for a little bit, uh, and we'll come right back. And, and Regan, I want I want to hear your thoughts specifically about poverty as it relates to Native people, both on our territories and in uh, you know in you know in, in urban settings. We'll do that Absolutely. when we come back. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. This is Resistance Radio. All right, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. and look, we we had a great. Your first half of the show was with, with Bob Henley, and I appreciate you know Bob joining us. It's always great to have him uh, as a part of this program. We, I, I'm sure we we kind of hit things a little different. I know Bob, uh, you know, is, is on with Michael G sometimes and a few others, um, but I'm I'm sure we nailed it a little bit different when Bob joins us. Uh, <laughs> now, Regan, I I do want to talk to you, and I wanted to hear your thoughts. I mean, I know what um, what poverty looks like. On native territories, I've been. Not only do I live on a native territory, uh, but I've lived on several. I've traveled to probably another, you know, maybe even as many as another hundred native territories in my in my life. So I've I've seen poverty, and I know what it looks like, where it comes from. But but I wanted to hear your thoughts because what I what I oftentimes n- neglect is what it is like for native people who are trying to carve out their lives in, in, in urban environments, especially since part of the reason we have such a an exodus of Native people from our communities to some of these urban environments is in the pursuit of some sort of gain, some financial gain. So give me your thoughts.
1: Absolutely. I'm really glad that we're talking about this. It's something that I've been unpacking a lot um, as an urban Indigenous person. Uh, you know, like I, I left, I left the South at a relatively young age to come uh, to come here um, as uh, to participate in resource extraction, to participate in gentrification. You know, like I came to Lenape Hoking to go to art school and to like further myself as this uh, as this you know as an academic, as an artist, and. I think a lot of us come into Lenapehoking, into Manahata specifically, with the intention to participate in resource extraction, with the intention to uh, move ourselves up on the social ladder. And of course, you know, there's always a constant reminder that that is part of capitalism and also a part of colonialism. So. It's something that I've been unpacking a lot, and of course, that's a difficult thing um, as an Indigenous person to realize that you are also part of this larger issue of resource extraction, of gentrification, and of um, the removal of community members off off land, uh, out of apartments
0: Can I stop you yeah, just of for a second? Because I do. I only wanted to add this because. It, this is also some of the reason that people make the move to go to some someplace like washington, d c. There are many native people who feel yes. like they can go to N- d c and make a difference. and And you and I have expressed our concern about th- that strategy. But I know that there are well-intended native people who who believe that that not only can they go to someplace like New York or Los Angeles or you know or or washington d c, to, to realize a, a a bigger impact on social change. So I just wanted to throw that out there, especially for our, our Washington, D.C. listeners.
1: Absolutely. I also think that something that really isn't discussed, which is something that I've personally been unpacking and looking to unpack further, is a lot of us leave our communities because of, of queer phobia, because of being removed from spaces or being seen as threats to spaces um, to our own community members. So I, I don't, you know when we talk about moving and leaving community and coming back to community, it's also important that we understand that community shifts and changes with us as well. So even though I do have community back home that I see as my kin, I also have community here, um, which is, you know, a group of people that have held me through a lot of trauma that has been inflicted. So I, I think that when we talk about this urban indigeneity, it's a new, not that it's new because we are new to the space we've always had cities but rather it's a new conversation because we're beginning to really look at what it what does it mean in terms of land back in terms of decolonial theory to be queer and urban indigenous and to feel unwelcome in our in our spaces to feel unwelcome back home to feel that we were pushed out of community for our queerness so i think that that is also part of the conversation that isn't really discussed um, when we talk about Leaving community. Sometimes we're forced out of community, and that's well, and, and an incredibly on, on that painful note, also, aspect.
0: W- let's not let's not forget when we talk about the the community shifting, we've we see in many ways much greater assimilation back home in some of these native Absolutely. territories than what we can realize as an activist in in an urban environment. And I think you know you being Choctaw. When I saw a couple of years ago, back when my, when my my friend. Um, uh, ben Carnes was still uh, was was still with us Th- that that the Choctaw nation of Oklahoma had made a formal tribal resolution declaring that they were a Christian nation. And they yep. had these huge billboards. So where did that leave all of the the native people who who had resisted this this assimilation into the church? So y- you're right. I mean, it isn't just that 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 society shifts. We can see the regression that takes place in some of our native territories back home in in a big way.
1: Yeah, assimilation is real. You know, I didn't feel like I was uh, was comfortable in community and back home in a lot of ways. You know, I'm I'm not Christian. I was not ever raised Christian either, which is I think an important aspect. I think both of my parents are pretty uh, <laughs> we're pretty against that in terms of how we were raised, which was beautiful. I, I'm so thankful that I was raised. Uh, without Christianity. Nonetheless, it's just in a really assimilation is so important when we talk about leaving community because I did not feel as though I could be a part of the community that was being built in. uh, At this point, this is in Georgia. Nonetheless, like when you come from assimilated nations that are overtly Christian, overtly homophobic and and embrace a lot of that as traditional, you escape. And so you go to, to different places. And I found myself here in Manhattan, in Lenape Hoking. And that's a and this is where I found my community and actually where I found a lot of my radicality. Um but now it's this question of like do I go back home and Participate in read you know. I hate the term re-education because it's so uh, tied to to boarding schools. But nonetheless, like I can see the benefit of going, quote unquote, back home and participating in education as a means to radicalize my community. So I think that when we talk about us as like urban indigenous folks, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack. That is just, it goes beyond just oh, I came here to resource extract. I also came here to escape a lot of, you know violence that i experienced within my life for my identity so i definitely feel as though this is like a a larger conversation that folks are now kind of tuning into more but when it comes to poverty which is where this all kind of started when it comes to poverty poverty of urban indigenous populations we see it constantly we just don't define it as indigenous and the reason i say that is because we have large populations of immigrant indigenous people from south of the so-called border you know, lots of folks coming in from Central and South America and working here in Brooklyn and in Manhattan and Canarsie land. And that poverty is real, but we don't define it as indigenous, which is incredibly problematic and participates in the erasure of the largest indigenous population in in an urban setting, which is here, you know, New York City has the largest urban indigenous population, and most of those folks are indigenous people from Central and South America.
0: So well, and I think much we of do it's see. Un, un, I think much of it's uncounted. When when they when I hear those yes, numbers, true, I can't help believe that much of the uh, of the indigenous population from you know from south of the U.S. border is is greatly being undercounted. undercounted.
1: And that kind of po- and those poverty systems function totally different because we're talking about po- people in poverty who do not um, are not part of systemic resources. So that's a totally different conversation about what does indigenous poverty look like in an urban space. Because a lot of these folks, as you said, are uncounted, uh, undocumented, underdocumented, choose not to be documented, have been forced not to be documented. And so what does that mean then? What does poverty look like? And that's when you see actual networks of mutual aid that we don't even define as mutual aid cropping up and becoming so radically important. And also why communities, especially immigrant indigenous communities, are so closed because there's a means of protection for one another in a way that I honestly don't see in other spaces, except for maybe on the res where, you know, we participate in this, like, you know, uh, like closing down where we'll hold secrets for one another and we'll move things around for one another. That does exist here as well. We have just networks that are just not government funded and not federally funded. They're networks based in, signal chains and text messages
0: which is beautiful well, and it's and it's and it's not like we're hiding i mean even when we're in these in uh, urban spaces it's just that you know, be, because of the the sheer population it is you know we're we're essentially hidden in plain sight you know I, but I also go back sometimes to, we uh, are
1: hiding and that that being able to hide and being able to be to be secretive is really important as sure you know especially yeah, when but, we and we're on our territory well,
0: especially in you know, many we of our territories, we can, that. we can. Go ahead. I'm sorry, in many of our territories, we can, you know, you know, you know, seek a little bit of refuge and, and quiet and away yes. from you know from a population. But in an urban environment, it, it is tougher. But I, I was bringing it up because I even recall how easy it was to identify the few native people who had set up during Occupy Wall Street, for instance, and. And as I was walking through you know, Zuccotti Park and, and, and I, it was so easy to be identified, um, obviously I was there to, to be supportive, um, but it, it just, it, it, it kind of amazed me how easy it was to, uh, to both be identified and to be, uh, and, and to identify Native people who were in that struggle.
1: Yeah, I just wanna, I just do wanna say that there is, um, there is power and secrecy in the same way that there's power in anonymity and autonomy. And so that even if folks may not witness or um, bear witness to the systems that exist in terms of indigenous mutual aid within urban centers, that is often purposeful. And that purposefulness is important in order for these models to maintain sustainability long-term.
0: Well, and and I just did uh, a two part series on my podcast from Let's Talk Native, talking about the the backstory, the origin story of the, of warrior society. So there's there's an element of uh, you know of how we represented ourselves as not just as men, but as as you know, a force of resistance as the warrior societies grew in our territories, and certainly secrecy was also a big part of that. So you know there's you know there's a little, a little bit of misdirection, but there's also this whole idea. That you know, we we don't want our entire underbelly to to show, especially as we're standing up, you know, and and resisting, you know, a a dominant culture in so many different ways. And so I do encourage people if you haven't, if you don't, if you haven't checked it out, I encourage people to check out my podcast podcast, which is Let's Talk Native with John Gain. You can find it on all the platforms. In the last two. Um, uh, episodes were a uh, two-part series with my friend Degorundege uh, from uh, from my own community of Kahnawake. Uh and he basically gave that whole origin story of the of the warrior society, and it's and it's a good listen.
1: I feel as though it is such a privilege to discuss mutual aid in public, especially on social media, considering how often Black and Indigenous people and other people have, of color have been criminalized and marginalized for doing that work. And though there is a benefit in beauty to see mutual aid spoken about so openly because that means more people are exposed to it and therefore hopefully participate in it you know, there is, for me, honestly, there is a sense of resentment often when I see specifically settlers, white people discussing mutual aid. When I think about how our ceremonies, our potlatch, not my potlatch, but rather Northwest potlatch ceremonies, but even our gift giving ceremonies were illegal until the seventies or how black Panthers and young Lords were systematically destroyed by the federal government violently because of mutual aid. So I think that when we discuss these like sy- these secret systems there is a benefit of secrecy because we already see we already saw with covid the co-option of mutual aid we saw nonprofits claiming to do mutual aid what an absurd hypocrisy we, that that those those things shouldn't exist in the same sentence so i i do think that that anonymity within moving in spaces within maintaining communities specifically from an urban indigenous perspective is a necessary part of our survival and our thrivance and there's a lot of it that people will never see and that's purposeful and thoughtful in the same ways that we guard our ceremonies and traditions because when we share them we've seen what has happened you know mutual aid is a part of the ceremony and tradition so when we invite settlers to participate in mutual aid it is truly a labor of love like it's it's an it's It's the biggest gift that you can you can give people who have constantly oppressed us is to invite them into a community protocol that requires both reciprocity, accountability and genuine care for one another.
0: Right. Right. You know, the other thing I I just wanted to throw out there uh, as when we hear po- uh, poverty being defined, um, there's mm. you know, they of course it's of course it's dollars and cents, you know, which is the the metric by which they measure it. Uh, it's not necessarily you know certainly quality of life issues and uh, and and that's also difficult. It's it's difficult when you're you're trying to look at a, a native population in an urban setting or in a uh, in, you know in you know, on a native territory. You know the thing that I find interesting is what they're now using as a definition or the metrics for um for inflation they've eliminated the price of food and fuel from the equation so they'll say well there's really just negligible um, inflation and the reason they do is they say well because uh, food and, and fuel prices are so volatile but regardless of whether they're volatile i mean it, it's i mean i know you, you, the vulnerabilities that 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 all populations, but certainly native populations in urban environments are uh, experienced because of the cost of food. and And the very existence of food deserts in urban environments make the cost of food a huge factor when you're determining you know the the inflation rate. And from a native standpoint on territory, not only do we have food, but because we don't have, we have you do, food deserts, obviously as well. So the the cost of fuel is is a huge factor when we're determining how you know what our state of uh, you know of poverty really is. So it's amazing to me that. That some economist just says, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna take the the rise in the cost of food and the rise in the cost of fuel out of the equation when we're measuring you know things like uh, inflation. It's it's, it's things that are oh,
1: things <laughs> that are so necessary. I, I can't believe that food would not be a part of that conversation. It is <laughs> literally a necessity for everyone. No, it's it's
0: absurd, and, and <laughs> I hear this all the time. That
1: angers me so much to hear <laughs>
0: Well and and of course who are the people you know whether they can actually if they have, have the good fortune to be able to fill their bellies is one thing but to be able to f- fill their bellies with with good nutritious food it's the people on the lowest end of the of, of the poverty scale Absolutely. and and so you know food you know again food is really relative you know to obviously not only our survival but but when we look at the the quality of life and and our development as human beings if you're just eating junk because that's all that's available to you because of where you live and 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 the fact that cheap food is the is the least healthy food is that's that's a problem
1: food food is political and that is an absurd thing to have to say because it should not be political
0: well, same with healthcare, right? Is, it, food and exactly, healthcare, how health, is it?
1: Oh God! uh The more we talk about this stuff, John, the angry I,
0: I get. <laughs> well, just don't, don't go out and kick anybody afterwards. Well, just, if you do, let me know who it was. Oh Lord, <laughs> it's, it's, we're gonna. It's no, getting, it, it is, it gonna yeah, no, it is. It is infuriating. Yeah, no, it is. This is, and but that's why I wanted to have this conversation. I I think people have to stop buying. Um, the information that's being dished out to you you have to think critically you have to parse some of this stuff because just because somebody with a smooth talking voice tells you well you know well, inflation hasn't uh, hasn't occurred yet um, but you know and, and disregard the price of the fact that a gallon of milk has gone up or a loaf of bread or, or any of that other stuff I mean you're going to ignore that because we don't count that in in our inflation numbers or the cost the fact that the fuel has risen uh, dramatically and not just motor fuel by the way we're talking about home heating fuel and all that stuff i mean it's yeah it's it's incredible it's incredible
1: it's incredibly disturbing is what it is at least it should be if people are not disturbed by these kinds of conversations then the amount of privilege you have to escape into is also disturbing
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Regan, I want to thank you. I want to thank Bob Henley for having joined us um, for the program. We will be back next week, and we'll dig it up again. So thanks for <laughs> joining us for Resistance Radio, and, you know, keep on resisting. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. Yahweh.